Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of June 15th, 2023, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, just today, June 14th, at least nine people were killed in intercommunal clashes, as they are called in India, in the northeastern state of Manipur, particularly in one Kamenlak village, clashes between the Meite and Kuki ethnic groups. What makes this particularly ominous is that it comes, as you perhaps may not have noticed, just six weeks after an outburst of ethnic violence in villages and towns throughout Manipur left some 70 dead and 30,000 displaced as their homes were set upon by mobs and put to the torch. So for those few who follow what is going on in this part of the world, there is a foreboding that greater violence could be about to explode. And it has implications for the entire northeast of India, an area of eight states cut off from the rest of the country by the Siliguri Corridor, or the Chicken's Neck, in between Bangladesh to the south and Nepal and Bhutan to the north, which is just like 20 kilometers wide at its narrowest point. So this entire region is very isolated, generally off limits to foreigners. You need special permission from the Indian central government to go there. And now the internet has been cut off in Manipur due to the violence. And in all of these eight states, there are ethnic insurgencies by marginalized indigenous peoples fighting for local autonomy or outright independence from India. And the borders between these states were often drawn without regard for the territories of these peoples, so they are divided by state lines, further complicating the situation. And some are even divided by the international border between India and Burma, or Myanmar, as it is formerly known today. And this is definitely the case with the Kukis and a related people we will also be discussing, the Nagas, who we also focused on in our last podcast on this question of August 22nd, 2022, entitled India's Forgotten Wars. You can Google it up if you didn't listen to it at the time. Most of the victims in last month's violence were from the so-called hill tribes of the Kuki and Naga ethnicities, who are mainly Christian, and were targeted by members of the Meite people, who are mainly Hindu and traditionally the dominant and favored group in the state, especially under the Hindu nationalist government of the ruling BJP, Bharatiya Janata Party, which holds power both in Delhi, of course, under the increasingly undemocratic rule of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and in the state government of Manipur, based in the state capital, Imphal. 
The Metes are um, mostly based in the Imphal Valley and account for about um, 52% of the state's population, while the so-called tribals, mostly Kukis and Nagas, make up around 40% of the state population and live mostly in the surrounding hills and forest lands. The Metes are also known as the Manipuri, and are the people for whom the state is named. All of these groups, the Metes, Kukis, and Nagas, speak Sino-Tibetan languages rather than Hindi, but the Metes appear to be much closer to India's dominant Hindu culture. I should say, increasingly dominant Hindu culture. What was instrumental in setting off the violence last month was the status of so-called scheduled tribes, a bureaucratic and legal designation in India, actually written into the Constitution for um, traditionally marginalized or disadvantaged ethnic groups from among the Adivasis, or tribal peoples, or indigenous peoples, as they are perhaps better termed. Manipur has some 30 communities listed as scheduled tribes, all broadly belonging to either the Kuki or Naga ethnic groups. And through a body called the Scheduled Tribes Demand Committee, the Meite leadership have been petitioning for their ethnicity, the Meite, to be listed as a scheduled tribe as well. And they won a ruling of the Manipur High Court on March 27th ordering the state government to send a recommendation in this regard to the Union Ministry of Tribal Affairs in Delhi. So they are currently waiting on a decision from the ministry. Now, being listed as a scheduled tribe not only includes an ethnic group in quotas for government jobs and college admissions, but also, quite significantly, gives the group access to so-called reserved forest lands under the Recognition of Forest Rights Act of 2006. And this appears to be what is really critical here, land, as is often the case. It appears to be perceived by the Kuki and Naga leadership, at least, that the Metes already control the good agricultural land in the Imphal Valley, and getting listed as a scheduled tribe could be their grab for the forest lands in the surrounding hills as well. Now, these would ostensibly be set aside for traditional purposes, sustaining a hunting and gathering economy, but there are already semi-legal or outright illegal extractive activities going on in these hills, timber and mineral exploitation, etc., and increasingly opium cultivation. Now, the violence began to heat up in March, not only due to the court decision, but also a move by the state government to evict communities from the reserved forest lands who were accused of opium growing and illegally encroaching on the reserved lands. But according to the Kuki and Naga leadership, even though most of the encroachers and opium growers are Metes, 
it's mostly Kukis and Nagas that have been evicted. And this led to a wave of arson attacks on forest ranger stations and so on up in the hills in March and April. And on May 3rd, the All Tribals Student Union of Manipur, Atsum, a body of Kuki and Naga youth, held a tribal solidarity march in villages throughout their territories, protesting against the granting of scheduled tribal status to the Metes. And in some villages, particularly that of Churachandpur, the march was attacked by Mete mobs, and this set off days of mutual violence between Metes on one side and Kuki and Naga on the other, with Kuki villages in the hills and shops owned by urban Kuki in Imphal especially coming under attack. The army was sent in on May 5th, and the Armed Forces Special Powers Act, AFSPA, invoked, giving soldiers the right to shoot on sight, basically, to put down unrest, and things subsided somewhat. There has been intermittent violence since then, and most recently, nine killed just now, June 14th, at Kamenlach village. From what I can gather, the nine dead are Metes, killed by Kuki militants in reprisal attacks for the torching of homes in the village last month. Uh, there is a religious angle to this that we should touch on. Okay, all three of these people, the Metes, Kuki, and Naga, originally had so-called animist indigenous spiritual traditions, but the Manipur kingdom, led by a Mete dynasty, adopted Hinduism in the 18th century, while the Kuki and Naga up in the hills continued to be animist for another century or so, until the British seized control of northeast India in the 1820s, and Christian missionaries started coming in. And as we noted in our last podcast on northeast India, going over the historical background, the British were, of course, trying to impose Anglicanism, and in order to assert a distinct identity and symbolically reject British rule, the Nagas mostly became Baptists, being converted by rival American missionaries. And the Kukis, for similar reasons, appear to be a mix of Baptists and Catholics. Although there is definitely a degree of syncretism going on, with elements of the old animist spiritual tradition surviving, and this religious distinction seems to continue to be significant as an assertion of a distinct identity in the contemporary Hindu chauvinist India of the ruling BJP. And disturbingly, in April, just before the really bad violence erupted, apparently at least three churches in Imphal's so-called tribal colony, the Kuki district of the city, were demolished by the state authorities for being so-called illegal constructions, quote-unquote. Interestingly, there also seems to be a sizable Jewish community among the Kuki, particularly among a subgroup that call themselves the Bene Menashe, who believe that the Kuki 
are one of the lost tribes of Israel. And the village of Churachandpur, where the violence erupted on May 3rd, appears to actually have a kooky synagogue. And finally, there is the armed insurgency element to the situation. Nearly all of the eight states of Northeast India have for generations seen guerrilla movements by tribal peoples seeking autonomy or independence. And the adjoining states of Manipur and Nagaland, immediately to the north, have seen among the most sustained of these insurgencies. There has been a profusion of armed factions, many of them influenced by Maoism, but again, as we've discussed, a kind of syncretistic Maoism with a big emphasis on indigenous identity. And one rebel group, the Kuki National Organization, identifies strongly with Judaism and flies a flag with the Star of David in their zone of control up in the remote mountains of Manipur. Very interesting. And the central government in Delhi has for many years been trying to broker a peace with these groups after beating them into a degree of abeyance with a really brutal counterinsurgency campaign, especially in Nagaland in the 60s and 70s, as we discussed in our last podcast on the matter. The government of India on December 27th of last year announced that it had signed a peace agreement or Suspension of Operation Pact, SOO, with the Zeliangrang United Front, ZUF, the insurgent army of one of the Naga tribes in Manipur, which seems to have been seeking a recognized autonomous zone for the Zeliangrang people. In 2008, the government entered into an SOO pact with two Kuki groups, the United People's Front, UPF, and the Kuki National Organization, KNO, the aforementioned. But in the new eruption of violence, talks are now on hold with two other Kuki insurgent groups, which apparently remain in arms, the Kuki National Army and the Zomi Revolutionary Army, with the Manipur state government accusing them of being behind some of the attacks last month and withdrawing from a tentative ceasefire that had been worked out for the talks. It seems like the state government may actually be at odds with the central government on this matter and taking a harder line. And very interestingly, on May 16th, the Naga National Council, which signed a ceasefire in 1964, but seems to still maintain an at least de facto or tolerated zone of control around the village of Chedema in Nagaland State, held a commemoration there of the 1951 Naga plebiscite, in which the Naga people voted for independence from India. And despite observing the ceasefire for two generations now, although there are other Naga rebel groups that do not, the Naga National Council is still seeking a recognized independent state for the Naga people to be called Nagalim, which would incorporate not only what is now the Indian state of Nagaland, 
but also portions of the adjoining states of Manipur and Assam, and territories across the border in Sagaying region of Burma. And the Kukis as well are bisected by the international border and have a significant presence in Burma, where they are known as the Chin, and have been also waging an insurgency against the Burmese government for many years. And the situation in Burma now, with a general Burman insurgency against the ruling junta, making common cause with the longtime ethnic insurgencies in the mountains and jungles, is actually winning some news coverage for these ethnic insurgencies at the moment. Not much, but at least some. Whereas on the Indian side of the border, they are almost completely invisible to the outside world. So that 70 people can be killed in Manipur last month, and it wins no more than perfunctory wire copy for maybe a day or two and is quickly forgotten. And this is in large part because these struggles don't fit into the great power game. They have little to do with the global chessboard. Now, in Burma, they do to a certain degree at the moment with Russia and China backing the junta and the West at least giving a certain degree of lip service to support for the resistance. But on the Indian side of the border, with some of these same peoples fighting for basically the same things, territory and autonomy, it really doesn't fit into the great power game. It's strictly an internal Indian matter. So, much to the happiness of the central government in Delhi, everyone in the West ignores it, because the mainstream media and the alternative media alike view the world almost entirely through the lens of campism, even if they're rooting for different camps. And I find that those who complain the loudest that the mainstream media are giving too much coverage to Ukraine and not enough to forgotten conflicts around the world are actually the people who will take the least interest in what is happening in places like Manipur and Nagaland and Northeast India. But we here at the Counter Vortex will continue to monitor these conflicts and try to offer some informed commentary. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I've been discussing tonight is all blogged up, documented, and hyperlinked. Please support us on Patreon. Once again, I will note that we have happily reached our minimum and very modest goal of $100 per podcast. In fact, we're now up to $104 per podcast. So, a big thank you to our new subscribers. If you are not one of them, please become one of them. Counter Vortex, <clears throat> unlike some of our competition, is not promoted by Russian state media or any other state media. We are a shoestring, homespun operation. These didactic rants that I offer every week require lots of research, as you may have noticed. Research requires time, and time is money. So, please help us to stay afloat with just one-seventh of the federal minimum hourly wage per week. 
a dollar, actually less than one-seventh of the federal minimum hourly wage per week, join the counter-vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.